Good morning. I'm going to read the text this morning. I'm going to ask you all to stand and, and be patient with me. Amen. Psalms 46, and thus reads, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the seas, though the waters roar and form, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. There is a river whose stream make glad the city of God, the holy habitations of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning downs. The nations rage, the kingdoms fatter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolation on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on, in the earth. The God of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Amen. Amen. Thanks, brother. You can be seated. Thank you, Connell. He and I read the word together some, and I feel like I can feel it when he reads it. Um, I'm going to pray for us this morning. Father, we ask that you would speak to us now through your word. Uh, I confess that I am an unworthy vessel. Um, I ask that you would use me, a sinful man, to bring your truth to your people that we might be renewed and restored in you. Father, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name. Back in October of 2011, uh, by God's grace, my wife Stacy and I were given the amazing gift of our first child. Uh, I've always dreamed of being a father, um, but I had no idea of the weightiness of that moment uh, until it actually happened. Unfortunately, though, for me, uh, the arrival of my firstborn was nothing like I'd hoped and dreamed. Um, you see, everything was going great uh, right up until the port when she was born. Uh, up until then, the doctors and the hospital staff, the nurses, everyone was in great spirits, calm, cool, collected. This was going to be a walk in the park. And, uh, and then the moment she came out of the womb, everything changed. The doctors and the nurses began to scurry around. Specialists were called in. Instead of the traditional handing the child to her mother while the father cuts the cord, instead my daughter was whisked away to the observation table as they began to try to forcefully clear her lungs. Uh, and I could see from the facial expressions on all the hospital staff that something was terribly wrong. Um, and I started to cry. 
uncontrollable tears. Uh, I wanted so hard to be tough and to hide it from my wife, but I couldn't. Uh, I cried because I was terrified, uh, because I didn't know what was about to happen to this daughter of mine that I had just met moments ago. Um, I turned 33 last week, and uh, so I don't have a whole lot of life behind me, and there have been very few moments thus far that have really rocked me to my core, Um, but that was one of them. Uh, It was in that hospital room that for the first time in my life, I felt, verse 2, that the earth was giving way and the mountains were being moved into the heart of the sea. My world was crumbling around me and I was powerless to stop it, and and I was scared to death. Our text this morning begins by painting a metaphorical picture of what it looks and feels like when everything falls apart. The psalmist chooses two of the most unchanging and indestructible objects on the planet, the earth, the ground that we stand on, and the mountains. And then he tells of their demise as if they were as fragile as a piece of china. It's a powerful word picture, isn't it? It's such an accurate portrayal of how it feels when when the things that we hold on to, the things that we cling to, the things that we think are going to hold us up seem to crumble. Most commentators believe that the author of Psalm 46 was writing at a time when God's people were under siege of a hostile nation. And it's clearly not one of those times that the outlook is looking good. Uh, It seems like they are doomed. Now, living in America in 2016, we don't really resonate with the idea of being conquered by a warring nation, at least not right now. But I seriously doubt many of us are unfamiliar with what it feels like to experience your world falling apart. Maybe you felt it in the loss of a loved one, the stronghold of an addiction, and the impossibility or the unfairness of the job market, and a mountain of debt that you can't seem to get out of, or in the darkness of depression that never seems to go away. I don't know what it looks like in your life, but I know for sure that circumstances such as these produce the same thing in all of us. They produce a keen awareness of our powerlessness. And what's birthed in that awareness of powerlessness is fear. We get scared. What's amazing about our text this morning is it seems to go against the grain here. Verse 2 says, and following, the earth is giving way, the mountains are falling into the ocean, the waves are raging, and they swallow up these massive, powerful rock structures. This is the description of utter and complete chaos, creation turning backwards. And, the, and yet the psalmist makes this unimaginable declaration in the face of such turmoil, turmoil. He says, we will not fear. We will not fear. This morning, I want to look at why. Today marks our final sermon in our summer series in the Psalms entitled, Rest for the soul. And our text this morning stands as a fitting conclusion, declaring to us, God's people, that there is rest to be found in the deepest valleys and the darkest nights. And what we see in Psalm 46 is that there 
are two essentials, two essential things for us to overcome in the worst of circumstances. These things must be true. We must first have a knowledge of who God is, and second, we must have a knowledge of who God will be. Who God is and who God will be. Let's look first now at who God is. I would like to argue that the fundamental difference between us, you and I, and the author of Psalm 46 is the author's awareness of who God is. He knows God. What the psalmist is making plain here is that the only hope for us to find rest in the midst of our world falling apart is for us to be crystal clear about who God is. As a pastor, especially in this denomination that's really high on doctrine, I so often hear this critique. You guys care way too much about theology and doctrine. Just love God and love others, and let's get on with it. Brothers and sisters, this text is a powerful reminder of why theology and doctrine matter, particularly the doctrine of God. If we don't have a robust answer to the question, who is God, we honestly don't stand a chance. You will not make it. Let me give you an example. A couple weekends ago, I had the privilege to go to a joint bachelor and bachelorette party. I think I, I'm confidently say I was the only Christian there. Um, and at such events, at events such as these, uh, when alcohol, Adult beverages are being consumed at a rate which I would not recommend. As a pastor, you're often given the opportunity to have some rather enlightening late-night conversations. <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. And I'm having one of these conversations, and it begins with this person giving me a monologue on who God is. This very question that we're seeking to answer this morning. And this person goes on to explain that because life is really hard, we all need something to hold on to, something to get us through. Now at this point, I'm tracking. I'm right there with her. And then she says, therefore, God is simply something that man created in order to be able to cope with life. From this perspective, she then argues that since religion is all about my personal satisfaction, it is totally fine for us all to worship whatever God works best for us. And my response to this was is that, to me, it sounds like you're likening God to a really good drug. So I'm, I'm an ex-drug addict, so she's speaking my language there. I can, I can really relate to what she's saying. God is something that I choose to ingest something that exists to help make the pain go away, right? And there's a lot of freedom in this perspective, in this model, if you will, much in the same way that I might choose Tylenol for my headache and you might choose Advil. It's, it's whatever you prefer. It's your choice. And to each his own because the purpose is simply to feel good, right? It doesn't really matter how we get there. And brothers and sisters, this really is the consensus in our society, in our city. God is whoever you want him to be, and he exists entirely to make you feel good. That's what our society says God is. But what's the problem with that view? Now, the main problem with that perspective is that it's profoundly contradictory to Scripture, which we'll see in our text. But, but even on a more basic level, the problem with that perspective is that when 
the stuff hits the fan, when life happens, that perspective doesn't hold any water. When your world is falling apart around you, are you really going to put your hope in some sort of God-shaped pill? Something that you can ingest that hopefully will give you peace. As a pastor, I spend a lot of time with hurting people. And I'm amazed at how often people, those who I was under the impression were atheists, maybe agnostic, come running to me in their time of crisis and they ask me to pray for them. And you know who they don't ask me to pray to? They don't ask me to pray to the God of my liking, to my drug of choice God. They ask me to pray to who they are hoping is the one true God, someone who is able to enter into their suffering and actually make a difference. That's who they want me to pray to. Which brings us back to our million-dollar question, who is God? Who, who are we praying to? And I want to lay aside what our culture says or even what we might feel, and I want you to look with me and see what the text says, what the scriptures say, what God, how he has revealed about himself, says to us in his, in his word. Look with me again at verse 4. There's a river whose stream makes glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. So the text says there's this place, it's a city with a stream flowing through the heart of it. But what makes this place so special? It's special because it's where God is. And because God is there, this place, this city is immovable, it's unshakable, it's eternal, it's secure. Verse 6, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter, and he utters his voice, the earth melts. So what's interesting is that although this place where God is is unshakable, that doesn't mean that people aren't trying to shake it. Again, remember the context that we're talking about. God's people are surrounded. They're under attack by an army. It's not looking to negotiate a treaty. This army wants to destroy them. But listen to this, church. Verse 6 reveals that when the nations bring their worst, God simply opens his mouth. He doesn't lift a finger and the nations melt like wax. That's our God. It's Him and only Him who can offer rest for your souls in the midst of the storm. Look at verse 7. This is what brings this beautiful truth to fulfillment. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Brothers and sisters, this is a verse that we all should hide in our heart and cling to each and every day. The Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaot in the Hebrew, or as the Net Bible translates, the Lord who commands armies. This is not some God that we created that makes us feel good. This is a military warrior God who cannot be thwarted. And the earth-shattering reality that comes from this verse 7 is that this mighty warrior God is the one who is with us. Brothers and sisters, do you know this God? Do you honestly believe that God can tumble nations with his voice? 
And just as important, brothers and sisters, do you believe that that same God is the God who is with you? It matters that we know who God is. Contrary to what our culture tells us, God's existence is not wrapped up in our belief of Him. He does not come into being through us believing in Him. He either is or He is not. And so his power and his presence are sure, brothers and sisters. They are sure. The only thing that is unsure is our awareness of them. I'm going to say that again. God's power and presence are sure. The only thing that is unsure are our awareness of them. Some of you may be familiar. You might remember the story of Elisha in Dothan. It's a perfect picture of these two different perspectives, two different ways of viewing who God is. Elisha and his servant wake up one morning and an army is surrounding them that wants to kill them. And the servant begins to freak out and he gets afraid and he says, Master, what shall we do? What are we going to do? And Elisha's response is rooted in right doctrine. He knows who God is. This is what he says, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Verse 17, then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open up his, the servant's eyes, that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The Lord of hosts was present there. The servant just didn't see him. The question is, do we see him? Do we see that God is present and powerful in our midst, able to overcome whatever might be before us? As I said before, we are a denomination that often gets criticized for our high view of doctrine, but I hope that you're beginning to see the beauty and importance here. I want to share with you, this is a compilation of everything that the Bible says about who God is Uh, everything that God has revealed in his word. This comes from the Westminster Confession of Faith. I'm not expecting you to digest all of this. I just want to put this before you, and I really want you to listen and be amazed. This is what the Bible says about who God is. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and with all most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. God has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in him, of himself and is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and has most sovereign domain, dominion over them, to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever himself pleases. In his sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature. 
so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men and every other creature whatsoever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. Wow. That's the God of the Bible. That's my God. That's the God who's strong enough to be our refuge and strength, a very present help in our trouble. Do you know that God? This brings us to our second final point this morning. It's not just a knowledge of who God is that gives us comfort, but also of who God will be. Look again with me in verse 8. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. The psalmist is preparing to make a prophetic statement, and as is the custom of the prophets, he must give reason for himself to be trusted. And so he's given the rationale in verse 8 and 9. And his point is, he says, come and see what the Lord has done so that you might be willing to trust what the Lord is about to say about himself. Come and see. I want to make a really brief aside here, but I think it's certainly appropriate. Brothers and sisters, we must be come and see Christians. One of the most profoundly life-giving things for us to do for one another is to be committed to inviting others to stand in awe of what God is doing in our lives. We have to be sharing with one another how God is at work. One of the important things that we do in congregational prayer is not only do we pray, but we share how God has answered those prayers so that our faith is strengthened. This is a practice of come and see. Come and see this awesome God. For those of you who are here this morning and have not given your life to Jesus Christ, who would not call yourself a Christian, it is our deep longing that you will feel so welcome here and that you would have a front row seat to see God's handiwork in our lives and in the lives of this city. We want you to keep coming and keep seeing. Would you keep doing that? Would you keep coming and seeing how God is at work? Back to our text again, it says, the psalmist extends this invitation, come and see, and then we hear the prophetic voice of God speak. He says, be still and know that I am God. It's a verse that's often quoted and uh, I think sometimes taken out of context. Uh, it, it's a verse that appears at first glance to be talking to the people of God, but if you follow the trajectory of the psalm, I really think he's talking to these warring nations. And the message that he's saying here is, is not uh, stop and, and find comfort and rest in God, which is a very biblical and true principle. But what he's saying here is very different. It's more akin to what Jesus says to the raging storm. He says, peace, be still. He says, silence. He says, I am the one true God. And he's calling us to submit, to recognize his authority and power and presence. But on what basis are we to submit? Verse 10, he continues, Because I will be exalted among the nations, and I will be exalted in the earth. Brothers and sisters, the message here is clear. God is saying, although you enemies of God may be experiencing 
momentary prosperity. Know this, that I am God and I will reign forever. This is the promise of all Scripture. One day God will come back and His glory will fill the earth and His kingdom will have no end. And this is where our doctrine must be spot on. Otherwise, we will get discouraged and we'll lose hope. Remember the context. God's people are in trouble. Verses 4 through 9 have made this, God has made this bold declaration that he has the power to conquer any force that stands against him. And the psalmist is writing in the midst of an attack. And what's interesting about this is we don't even know if they won this battle, right? The text doesn't even tell us if God intervenes or not. We don't even know that the people of God may actually have been conquered. So how can we continue to trust and hope in the midst of this when we don't even know if God is going to come through for us? So often we're afraid because we ask God to intervene in our lives and He doesn't show up. He remains silent. Amen? Has anyone ever experienced that before? Where you've cried out to God and you, you want to believe that God is able, that He's this almighty, all-powerful God, and yet He seems silent. I watched a dear friend of mine lose his mom to cancer a few years ago. It was a horrific battle, and the church that he attended really rallied around their family, and they were trusting God for a miracle. At one point, someone even shared with my friend that they had received a word from God that his mom would be healed. Uh, however, after fighting for about a year and a half, my friend's mom went home to be with the Lord. And as a result, my friend walked away from God because he thought he knew a God, verses 4 through 9, who was able to heal his mom, and yet that didn't happen. Brothers and sisters, here's the crossroads that we face as Christians. Are we going to continue to believe in a God who is in absolute control and is absolutely good in the face of suffering? I, um, I got some news this morning um, from a dear friend that really deeply saddened me. And I've been trying to compose myself this morning and have been struggling. Um, I don't even know. It, it, it has made me so desperately want this to be true. If this isn't true, then I don't have any hope. I can't continue to do what I'm doing here as a pastor and continue to, to trust and walk with God and, and herald Him as this awesome and mighty, wonderful thing. Unless this is true. I don't know why tragedies happen, but there, there is truth that this text gives us that's on either side of the tragedy that gives us the courage to carry on. On one side, we hear verse 1 that God is strong, that he is a refuge, and that he is present in our trouble. And on the other side, verse 10, we hear that he will be exalted among the nations and in the earth. Brothers and sisters, I'm, I'm not I don't know, I'm not here to give you an answer about how and why you experience great suffering in the moment. But I do believe what this is saying is much like a tapestry when we turn it over, one day we will see God's beautiful handiwork and we will be compelled to worship. But until then, 
we must cling to what we know to be true of God now and forever. We serve a mighty God who holds all power in his hands. This mighty God sent his son Jesus and conquered sin and death and began the process of redeeming all that was broken in the fall. And one day King Jesus will come back and he will say silence to a rebelling world. And he will make all things new once and for all. I don't know what you're walking through right now, but I charge you to rest in that God, to know who he is and who he will be. And then and only then will you find the courage and resolve to face the great trials of this world and say, I will not be afraid. After my daughter was born, I spent the next six hours with her in the transition nursery. Not able to hold her because she was, her tiny little body was connected to all the machines. And you know what I did for six hours? I prayed. Prayed my guts out. Not because I'm super spiritual or because I have this robust prayer life, but because I was scared to death and deep down I know who God is and who he will be. And so in my fear, I leaned into the one person who I could trust. My oldest daughter's name is Ava Grace. Uh, her name had little meaning when Stacy and I chose it months before she was born. But you see, the name Ava means breath of life. And it was because of God's grace that my daughter was able to breathe. We serve a mighty God who was with us in the struggles. I want to leave you with verse 1, and may this, this verse give you rest, rest to your weary souls. God is our refuge and strength. He is very present in your trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Let's pray. God, I confess that I, I want this to be true, and I have doubts. I hear horrible sad news this morning and and I confess I wonder where are you in that and so God I, I run to your word like I hope everyone in here does and we we cling to what your word says about who you are and who you will be and we pray that that would give us the strength the courage to continue to carry on that that would give us rest in the midst of great trials and suffering. God, would you show yourself to be real and awesome and mighty and good? And would we cling to that truth each and every day? God, I pray these things in your son's name. Amen.